Hello, friends, and welcome to Sterile Field Guide, a podcast dedicated to medical student general surgical education. I'm Alex, and I'll be your guide. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Sterile Field Guide. I am sorry that we missed last week. There was not an episode published last week, and I sound like this because it's been a week since I posted, and I have to give you an episode today. But the reason why we missed last week was because it was ERAS week. Um, And unfortunately, I'm not mispronouncing eras like the Taylor Swift kind of era. ERAS is a residency application. So last week, as I'm recording this, was the time that we needed to turn in our residency applications. And so it was a little bit of not even a scramble because I had time to work on it and it was done, but it just was like a stressful week. And then everything else that I had been putting off because I've been pouring over my ERAS application. I needed to get done by the end of the week. So anyway, I have a lot of excuses. However, I owe you a bonus episode and I apologize, especially because I'm so sinusy today, but we're going to do our best. So today I just wanted to talk to you about what applying to residency looks like, what sorts of things you can start preparing for and at what time you can start preparing for them. At the time of this episode, I have not interviewed, I have not been accepted to a residency program, so this does not serve necessarily as an advice and how to be successful episode, but more so as an episode where you can walk away and be like, these are my next steps, or at this stage of my training, this is what I can be working on, because I feel like this information does exist in the world and you can read about it and read all the articles. People have differing opinions and ideas and hopefully putting it all in one place in a way that you maybe can listen to it as you walk to work or something might be helpful in sort of simplifying the process, but also making you feel a little bit calmer because it's not so bad. It doesn't have to be so bad. So we'll talk about it. Um, and then hopefully Hopefully one day I'll have an advice episode for you, but we will just see how the interview season goes. I want to start by talking about all of the documents that go into ERAS, just sort of like a list of them. And I may forget some, but the big things that go into ERAS and then sort of talk about a timeline of what you can expect and when you should start preparing for these different things. And this is based off my experience. This is based off things that my deans have told me. And so if you do it this way, you're at least doing it how one other person in the world has done it. But I'm certain that some other people did it this way because this is the advice we got from our school. All of the documents, obviously you're gonna have your main ERAS application. And on here, there's gonna be, there's lots of sections. There's demographic section. There is, I have mine pulled up right now. You can put your medical school awards, your membership and honorary and professional professional societies. You can put 10 experiences, and we'll talk a little bit more about those, 10 in the year of 2023 to 2024. They just changed it, I think, from last year where it was unlimited, but now it's 10. So we'll talk about that. There's a place for you to put your publications, your presentations, your research presentations, um, language fluency, and then other awards and accomplishments. And that's kind of like the bulk of the ERAS application. And then on top of that, it's basically like a CV, but in a different format. And then on top of that, you have letters of recommendation. A lot of people do this in a lot of different ways. So I got four letters, but some people get a lot more than that because they want to send specific letters to specific programs or they did a bunch of aways and they want to get as many letters as they can and then sort of personalize where they send their letters to. 
Some people get less, like the programs that I'm applying to recommend that you have three to four and some people will get three. I have been cautioned against doing that because some program directors or people will look and say, well, you have the opportunity to get four. Why didn't you get four? So letters of recommendation, again, we'll do a little bit of a deep dive, but all that to say there will be some amount of letters of recommendation that you will need to get. And then you have a personal statement, and then you have a dean's letter, which is called an MSPE letter. You have a photo of yourself, and then your med school transcript, your USMLE transcript with your board scores, etc., will be sent. And the USMLE board scores does cost money, but I think it was like under $100. It was close to $100, I think, but it was under $100. So that's kind of like the bulk of what goes into the ERAS application. So now we can sort of break down each piece and talk about the components and then at the end maybe talk about a timeline. So if you're listening to this, just curious what goes into it, figuring out like what you need to be doing now, which is probably nothing if you're if you're anywhere but ready to apply. But we can start talking about like what sorts of things go on it so that if you if you haven't done that activity or you need to be in more professional societies, etc., like that's something that you can start working on. So anyway, going a little bit deeper into the ERAS application. So a blank form of the ERAS application is available online if you are antsy to start filling it out, although I don't necessarily know that you need to do that. But if you want to, it is available if you want to look at it, if that makes you feel better, that exists in the world. So I'm looking at mine right now. So it starts off with your biographic information. So you have your name, your mailing address, some demographic information, as well as your different IDs. So how they can identify you and get your USMLE scores to line up essentially with your application. Um, And then you can talk more about like your geographic and setting preferences is a specific question. And so did not have a preference. And so I did not mark a preference. Um, But that is a specific answer to say I do not have a preference. You can also leave it blank. But there are geographic and setting preferences. So geographic being like Midwestern, Northeastern, etc. But there the way that they block it up seems kind of gerrymandered, but it I guess it isn't. It's based on the census divisions of the United States. So take a look at the census divisions if you want, or it might be on the blank application, like what the geographic preferences are. Um, but the division preferences are kind of wonky because if you choose like, quote unquote, the Midwest, you're not really choosing all of the states in the Midwest. So then you have to choose multiple regions to choose Midwest. So all that to say, it's just like a little bit wonky, feels kind of gerrymandered, but it's just the way that the U.S. Census does their job. So that's a division preference. And then you can write, I think, 280 characters um, about why that is your preference. I wrote about my division preference, but not my setting preference. Um, some other people did that. I don't really know if that's going to be good or not, but setting preferences like rural, urban, etc., And then you can write about why that's your preference. I said no preference. And then I did not write about that because it's essentially just reiterating what I wrote in my division preference. That might not be true for you. So just like go based on what you're writing and what makes the most sense. I like to think about this, and I don't know this to be true because obviously I haven't been accepted, but I like to think that the people who are reading my application probably don't 
want to read extraneous words. So that is a choice that I made and we'll hope that it was a good one, but we'll, we'll see, we'll see. And then there is a section where you can talk about your medical licensure. So if you're ACLS, PALS, BLS, etc certified and then um, some other things about certifications or if you've ever been in a malpractice suit state medical licenses medical education a lot of this isn't going to apply to you uh, medical education will you'll just put where you went to medical school medical school awards is a section that exists and then membership in honorary or professional societies some um, this is where you'll say if you're an AOA member we don't have AOA at my school so that is not like a thing that we can click, but that does exist. And then you'll put information about your, I'm sorry, I'm really just reading you the application. I promise we'll talk about stuff. Um, you can put your education, so where you went to undergrad, um, if you did any postgraduate training, and then you get to your experiences. So basically all that I've talked about before is just like fill in the boxes, that stuff that you know about yourself. You might have to do a little bit of digging to get your medical school awards. So like any scholarships, any awards that you have gotten in medical school can go in this box. And then after that, it's just stuff that you probably know pretty well about yourself. The experiences I think is the place that's going to take the most reflection and thinking about what you've done, what's the most meaningful to you, why is it the most meaningful to you, etc. So this year you can do up to 10 experiences and these experiences can fall into this drop down menu of experience types. So I can read some examples. I don't, I know that I don't have every single type of experience on here. Um, so there's volunteer service and advocacy is an experience type. Teaching and mentoring work is an experience type. I have a lot of teaching and mentoring. Um, let's see. Uh, research is another one. Extracurricular activities, clubs, and hobbies is one. And those are kind of the ones that I clicked, but there's there's quite a few different types of experiences that you can choose. And then from that, you can also choose a key characteristic of each activity that you've done. So some of those key characteristics are things like teamwork and leadership, communication, reliability and dependability, empathy and compassion, critical thinking and problem solving, ingenuity and innovation. The list goes on, but those are the ones that I chose. And you just essentially just apply one that fits the, I guess, the vibe of that experience the best. And that is sort of how you choose what your experiences are. Um, and then you have the opportunity to write about them. And then you can choose up to three as your most meaningful activities. And then you can write more about them. But it's not much more. It's like a sentence or two. You have enough characters for a sentence or two to write more about your most meaningful activities. So... In thinking about these, this is the part that took the longest for me, both in deciding what my activities would be, as well as writing about them and figuring out what the most useful way to write about them, what to communicate about them. And then on top of that, writing my most meaningful. And because this is just a bunch of free text, like proofreading this and making sure that it sounded good to a bunch of people was part of my strategy as well. So there was a couple friends of mine that we just passed each other's applications back and forth a couple times and did a lot of revisions. Um, a lot of like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Or, oh, your formatting of your dates is different in every single box. So there's a lot of things that can can, can potentially quote unquote go wrong with the experiences section. So this is the one that I think is going to take the most time and you can start brainstorming about this early 
thinking about the things that you've done, especially if you're like really super involved, heavily involved in a lot of clubs, a lot of leadership. I would say that in my experience, I am not necessarily involved in a lot of things, but I do the things that I do very deeply. And so that can sometimes make the experience section a little bit harder to fill out. Um, But it ended up working out. And I think with a little bit of reflection, it was easy enough. So I, let's see, let's see what I can tell you about this. So to give you kind of an example, I will just broadly talk about um, a few of my experiences or give you like a category of each one of them just so that you have some idea. But but this goes along with my, my philosophy is that you should not do things for the sake of doing them. So hopefully the things that you have done in medical school are things that you can write about or things that were meaningful that you have played a role or that they have actively played a role in your life. And so... Hopefully that's what you have. And hopefully, even if you have a little bit of trouble deciding, just dig a little deeper. There's probably something there. So my first, my three most meaningful, I talked about um, an executive position that I had at a free clinic. I talked about this podcast and I talked about my work experience from undergrad as I worked for about five years as a CNA or certified nursing assistant, which was meaningful and formative and I think makes me a good candidate for different reasons. So that was important for me to write about. So those are my three most meaningful experiences. But then after that, I have another like executive teaching position that I have an advisor position. And like when I have spoke on panels, I kind of squished those together um, as an instructor for invited talks. So big talks that I have given or skill sessions that I've led. And then the research component, there is a section on your ERS application where you can put published research or, or oral presentations or poster presentations that you have given. There is not a spot necessarily for you to write about works in progress. And if you are like me, you have like on Friday, I submitted like four abstracts to a conference and I'm like, if only I could do this one month earlier. So there is a place where you can use research as one of your experiences, and then you can write about your ongoing research in a research experience, essentially. And so I used one of mine to talk about my ongoing research because we've got a couple projects going on right now. I talked about being a choreographer in our dance team, which I thought was um, a fun activity and I I thought really hard about this and I think this is part of like applying to residency and knowing that people who you look up to and want want to like you are going to be reading about your life and maybe perhaps judging it a little bit it's not like I don't know a traditional surgeon thing to be a dancer or to talk about how choreography is like helpful for thinking about problem solving and learning a physical skill on the spot and responding to feedback, etc. But I ended up writing about it and I, I passed this by a resident and he told me, and I won't name his name because <laughs> maybe he'll be liable for this statement, but essentially like it's hard to interview people and having having like genuine experiences, but also having a personality is not a crime. So let's hope that other people think that as well. But essentially that is what I wrote about there. So I guess you can follow in my footsteps if you want to. We don't know if it worked yet, but but you can write about things that are maybe like a little bit outside of the medical sphere. I also wrote about one experience that I had from college that was fairly 
impactful for me um, that I worked on for like four years. So I think the advice that I've had for including things from undergrad is essentially if you're able to talk about them and they are meaningful, it's okay to include them. I wouldn't necessarily, my, my sense is that you probably shouldn't have your whole application be undergrad stuff because it, it's been a long time since you've been an undergraduate. You're probably a lot different person than you were in undergrad and also you've had four years <laughs> to like do something else. So um, I wouldn't feel at all with undergrad stuff, but things that you've done before or you, even in your gap years, like meaningful stuff, I think is fine from what I've heard to include on your application. And then I do have an entire experience dedicated to writing about my hobbies, which I was also told by this resident was like totally fine and show some personality and it'll give them some talking points. So maybe our interviews aren't so awkward. Um, I'm really exposing myself. I hope nobody interviewing me is listening to this. I guess you can get all the answers you want from from this right here. And then there is, um, so that's the experiences. That's the part that took the most time for me and maybe won't for you, but I think choosing your experiences, really like thinking about why this was meaningful to me what of these is the most meaningful really like makes you reflect back on your med school days. And I think that this is something that you theoretically could start doing as you're like keeping your CV up to date. It's like, okay, which, which of these are like going back through CV. If you don't have a CV done right now, that's okay. I didn't have my CV done until like maybe March of this year because I knew that I was going to start asking for letters of recommendation and I was maybe going to have to send my CV to somebody. So it's okay if you don't have your CV done, but maybe as you're crafting your CV or trying to remember the things that you've done, start thinking about like, what were your roles? Why did you like, I don't know, things that you can talk about, but also things you can write about on your application. Okay, so then finally, there is a section where you can put your publications. So there is a peer-reviewed journal article and abstract. There are a lot of different I, I suspect that a lot of people are going to fall into these these three categories that I'm going to talk about, but there are more categories. So there's um, on mine, I have my peer-reviewed journal articles and abstracts, poster presentations and oral presentations. There are more options on there. So if you have something that's like published but not peer-reviewed or something, like there's a lot of different ways <laughs> to slice a cat, I, I reckon. So that is available for you to peruse on the internet. And then once you get there, like figuring out the categories and stuff won't be too bad. One thing, if you have a ton of time and you want to start working on now, the formatting of the research stuff is a little different than probably you have it on your CV. It doesn't take that long to change, but it is a little annoying. So if you want to start working on it now or like start getting some of it done, it just, it was repetitive and it took a lot of time. And you do have to ask some people for their middle initials if they like to have that. So start working on that now. <laughs> um, then there's a section for language fluency and then your hometowns. Someone I know put like six hometowns. I don't know. The instruction said somewhere where you feel like a big, like a sense of belonging. And I don't, I really don't know that I necessarily feel a sense of belonging. Like the place that I went to college, like that doesn't feel like home to me. So I didn't put that as my hometown. Some people did. I put where I go to school and where I grew up as my hometowns um, because I am an adult now and I have made a life here, which is not necessarily as true as it was an undergrad. Like I 
anyway, so do with that information what you will. And then for other awards and accomplishments, that's another section and you can just put uh, awards and accomplishments there. Most of mine are from undergrad, but I was told that it was fine to put them on there. So I did. Yeah, so that's the ERAS application. So it might end up being about 11 pages um, and it took, I mean, I worked on it pretty consistently, but not like all day long, every day for about a month. Um, and before that had been doing a lot of prep work. So that's the ERS application. That part takes quite a bit. Don't be afraid to like tinker with it, but I will assure you that you don't necessarily need to be working on it way ahead of time. Okay, so we talked about the ERS application. Starting to talk about letters of recommendation. This was something that was really stressful to me and I rotated on a service in April. And at this time I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know who my letter writers are gonna be. How will I ever, <laughs> like in April, the application's due in September, the end of September. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't, like nobody knows me, nobody cares. Like, I don't know, having some sort of conniption, but it ended up being fine because I got a couple letters in April and then I sort of knew I was gonna get one or I knew I was gonna ask for, from one from a person that I ended up confirming in June in a rotation. And then I got my last one in August. So sort of coming down to the wire, but it was calculated. And I had had conversations with these people knowing with the last one in August, like knowing that we probably I was going to ask them for a letter of recommendation um, at the end of my rotation. And I did. And then it worked out fine. So I think my my summary of advice for letters of recommendation is don't panic if you are starting the year or you're in springtime and you don't necessarily have them figured out yet, that's a great time to start figuring them out, I would say, because it's important to like give them a little bit of heads up and some notice before you need it back. <laughs> so like if you were going to ask them in September for a letter and it was due in two weeks, like that might be tough for them to do. Most of the people that I had write me letters wanted to meet with me um, before. All that to say, I think giving yourself a little bit of time, I think I asked for my first letter at, letters at the end of April and then didn't meet with those folks until probably June. <laughs> anyway, all that to say, you're not behind if you don't have letters in the springtime, but it's a good time to start thinking about who could write your letters. And I would just meet with your program director at your institution if you have the ability to, to ask like, who should I get letters from? Because in the past, it, it was that you needed to get a chair letter, at least for general surgery. And if you didn't have that, then people looked at you funny, but the the culture's changing a little bit. And so just like checking in. And then also you can check some like program websites to see like probably most of them are gonna need to be in surgery if you're doing general surgery, but there are some specific rules about like if you have people outside of surgery, like how many can you have? So I would just look at those recommendations specifically. As for how to request letters, I sent a formal email after working with these folks for like pretty closely for at least a month. Um, and then I sent a formal email and asked them. And then I said, if this is something that you'll want to do, I would be happy to send my documents. I have heard from people that they don't love it when you're asking if they want to send, if they want to write you a letter. And then you're like, here's my CV and my personal statement just in case, because then there's like this assumption that you think they're going to say yes. Anyway, even if you are pretty sure they're going to say yes, I have heard from people that they don't love that. So don't do that. 
unless you're told to, I guess. <laughs> All right, next, working on your personal statement. This is something that our school asked us to have done, I think by the end of May, or at least a first draft. I will tell you, my first draft was not good. Um, my second draft was not good. So I think just like with applying to medical school, applying to residency, just get it, get your draft done. Don't ever hit that backspace key. Just like get it done if you are the type of person to get stuck. And then some advice that I received on my personal statement before I wrote it um, was like, don't make it too cheesy. This is a professional personal statement. Most personal statements are going to be a little bit on the cheesy side. But try not to make it like too touchy-feely or too sob story. It's okay to have a personality, um, but that's some advice that I got on my personal statement. It's about a page long. Next, you have your dean's letter, and our dean's letter is written by our dean, which is excellent. Um, and then in it is like, for us at least, like feedback that we've gotten throughout medical school, sort of giving a big picture of who we are. And then finally, last thing that I'll talk about is your photo. We had the opportunity to have somebody take our photo here, which was nice because I spend so much money on tuition um, and am not in classes for five months. So uh, at the very least, I could get a professional photo taken, but um, you will need a picture of yourself to put in your application. So think about that and figure out how to organize that if that's not something that your school offers. So then talking about the timeline, I sort of gave a little bit of a preview of the timeline, but essentially applications are due at the end of September. And so what should you be doing? Let's say, let's say that you're rounding the corner of your fourth year. It's like January of your third year. You're starting to do some more rotations. You're starting to meet some more attendings. I would say like January through May, this is kind of like when you're going to start like thinking about who's going to write your letters. I didn't have a clinical rotation in surgery uh, until I think April. And so that's when I, because I did some IR and some radiology, I wanted to get really tanked up on my anatomy and stuff before I jumped into my surgical rotations again. And so I didn't rotate until April. So that sort of like gave me a little bit of a fright. But I think you can start thinking like January through May, like who do I want? Like what am I thinking about? Who's going to write my letters? Am I going to have adequate exposure to those people? And if I'm not, who else will write my letters or how can I get exposure to those people? And I think those are questions you should start asking yourself. I think personal statement, um, you can start working on kind of at any time, but I would say like try to have a draft done by May. So you can start having by the end of May. So you can ha start having people like look at it um, and give you some feedback because especially if you're still doing rotations throughout the summer into August and September, you're not going to want to have to stress about a personal statement. So if you have time, which you do because September has already passed, um, um, at least when I'm recording this, so you will have time to like start thinking about what you want to write in your personal statement. I know that I, I started writing mine probably in, in May or April and like didn't finish until the end of May. And so I just, I don't know. I had a lot of writer's block. That's going to be normal if that happens to you. Don't, don't you dare worry about it. So letters of recommendation, thinking about asking for sort of by like June or July, probably. I asked for my last letter in August. So at the end of August. And so they had one month to write it, which is plenty of time. Um, but just keep that in mind. What else? What else can you start working on? I think for 
As far as like preparing for the bulk of your application, I think just like keeping your CV up to date is going to be the most important. And then you can start thinking about your experiences. So let's say you're like a first year listening to this and you're not in any clubs. That's okay. I wasn't in clubs my first, a lot of clubs my first year. I think I was in like maybe one or two. But that was also COVID year, so things are a little bit different (laughs) when you don't start med school during COVID. So start thinking about like what you want to be involved in and why you want to be involved in that. And then I will say, not that you should do things for an application, but again, my, my philosophy is that you should not do things for the sake of doing them. So don't, don't get an executive board position in a club that you don't care about so that you have an executive board position and you have something to write about in your application because number one you don't really care about that and so it's people are gonna get a sense that you don't care um you can schmooze as much as you want like people are good especially people in medicine I feel like at like reading how you really feel about something. And then also, if you don't really care about the organization, you're not going to give it your best. And there's somebody out there who wants that position who really does care. And just, you're not doing anyone a favor. So my philosophy, again, don't do things for the sake of doing them. There's only 10 spaces on your experiences. Okay, so if you're a first year and you're like, I'm going to sign up for 25 clubs so that I look like the most involved person, it doesn't even help you. It doesn't even help you. So if you want to do 25 things, do 25 things. But if you don't want to do 25 things, that's also fine. That's also okay. So anyway, I think at any stage that you're in, you can you can be thinking about like, what am I doing and what am I going to write about on my application? But please don't do things for the sake of your application. That's my advice. Again, haven't been accepted and maybe that's wrong, but I just feel like being a genuine person is more important than being able to fill out a piece of paper. Um, Okay, and then the MSPE letter, your dean will take care of getting your photo done. You can upload that the day before you submit, which is at the end of September. So I wouldn't really worry about those things. So this has been a little bit of a convoluted discussion about what the ERAS application looks like and what is on it. And I hope that it was helpful at least to get sort of a little bit of an introduction or an overview of what you can expect. Oh, final thing. I asked this question quite a bit, and for general surgery, I was recommended to apply to 40 to 60 programs, and at the end of the day, applying to that range of programs is going to cost you at least $1,000, so just keep that in mind with your budget um, and also starting to put your like program list together. I didn't do that until I was like in my application month. So in September, I started to put my program list together. I had some programs I had my eye on, but had to do research about others. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily panic about that at this juncture. However, I was recommended to apply to 40 to 60 programs. And then you have five signals for general surgery. This is different for different programs. Um, and I didn't mention this, but ERAS is not the only application that exists in the world. And a lot of People like anesthesia, plastic surgery, et cetera, are shifting towards or have different parts of their application that are on different systems. So luckily general surgery is ERAS, but not not everyone is. And then the signals are different for different specialties, but you essentially send signals to places that you really want to go to. And you have five signals and you will either, so let's say you want to go to your home institution Um, I would have a conversation with your program director to see if they prefer that you send them a signal 
anyway, or if they're like, okay, I know you're interested, don't send a signal here um, so that you can like strategically use your signals. But that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> I'm not going to expose myself. All right. Well, I hope this was helpful. Um, and I hope this gives you a a peace of mind when approaching the application season. It's not so bad. It's just, it's just anxiety provoking. And I think that's normal. So enjoy the process and I'll talk to you next week. That's it for today's podcast. You can support this podcast and receive exclusive educational content on Patreon and find us on Instagram at Sterile Field Guide. Questions and requests can be submitted to our Gmail at sterilefieldguide at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may your retraction be superb and your suture tails be the perfect length.